Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today is the 4th of December 2014, and I'm very, very pleased to welcome back to the programme Pete Griffiths of Ex-Scientologists Ireland, who joined us back in 2013, I think it was episode 33, I may be wrong about that, but for uh, some reason that number sticks in my mind, and uh, he joined us to talk about the history and beliefs of Scientology and about its founder L. Ron Hubbard. And that particular interview has proved to be really quite popular among the New Religious Movement interviews here at The Mind Renewed. So, Pete, thanks very much for coming on again. It's very good to speak to you after all this time. You're welcome, Julian. It's good to speak to you as well. <laughs> well, I remember last time I broke the ice by asking you about how the weather was with you, but I guess there isn't any need to break the ice this time. But nevertheless, I'm going to ask you anyway, how is the weather with you there in Ireland? <laughs> Um, that's a good question. I don't know. Looking out the window, it's kind of grey and overcast. It's Ireland. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, well, of course, what we're going to be talking about today, certainly in the latter part of the interview anyway, is the current state of the so-called Church of Scientology mm -hmm. as a kind of update from our first interview, um, sort of how it's going these days, something about your experience uh, of your activism and seeking to warn people about the dangers of Scientology. Okay. And I know that a lot has happened since our first interview. Um, but before we get into all that, I think really because it's some time since that first interview and, um, you know, even those listeners who did hear it might appreciate a kind of jogging of the memory with respect to Scientology. So I'd like to ask you a few general questions to set the scene for the conversation. And obviously, I'm bound to say, if any listeners haven't heard that first interview with Pete Griffiths, please do go back through the archive at TMR, either via the 2013 interview archive or via the topics tab under New Religious Movements, and you'll find it there. And I do recommend it because Pete did go into considerable depth in that interview. So as I say, a few questions to set the scene. First of all, perhaps you could give us a brief reminder of how you got into Scientology in the first mm -hmm. place and what happened to you once you got into it. Well, people don't join cults. They join groups of people with an aim that they can agree with and align with. And that's exactly what happened to me. Mm. Uh, I was sold on the idea that I could be a better person, that I could improve, and that doing courses and processing which is what they called auditing and they still do sometimes but processing has the implication of uh, what well, you're processing people <laughs> it kind of sounds a little sinister doesn't it it does rather yeah, yeah, yeah. North, were you actually North, uh, you were shown this uh, dianetics route first of all is that right that's exactly right now i had heard of scientology and i'd also heard that it was something of a cult but of course dianetics was portrayed as part of it i mean they didn't deny that it was part of it but they did suggest that it was something completely different now the interesting thing is historically if there hadn't been any dianetics there wouldn't have been any scientology so it definitely is more than just you know a part of it it, it isn't separate it's the same idea just kind of expanded upon but the idea that you might have part of your mind holding you back that was full of all the pain and all the troubles, basically all the bad things that ever happened to you and that this could hold you back in life, I, I bought into that idea. The interesting thing, of course, is that it's just not true. You know? <laughs> so, so they were telling you that you could do this processing and, it, as you say, nothing to do with Scientology. So you, there was no thought in your mind at the time that you would end up becoming a member of the Church of Scientology. Certainly not, no. And again, this, this is another interesting thing. You do become a Scientologist step 
by step. It doesn't happen overnight. Mm. The first step you take is quite crucial because you're on that road. They say that if you wish to leave, you can do, but they don't want you to. They want you to move on to the next step and the next step. And that's the structure of the entirety of Scientology, a series of steps. They call it a bridge, but it's really more like a ladder that that you work your way up to the top. And when you get to the top, well, you fall off. (laughs) So that's interesting. So they didn't hide everything to start with, but they just sort of made very little of the fact that it was Scientology. Scientology was something completely different to Dianetics. I was doing Dianetics. It's about improving myself. It's about the mind. But of course, by the time all that was done, I was ready to hear more. So, you know, it is set up very, very well. Um, yes, and I was saying to you before the interview that it actually reminds me of something that Gordon Neufeld said with regard to the Moonies and how he was introduced to what he thought was a kind of community project and nothing was said about Reverend Moon until sometime later, right. you know, and then that seems to be a pattern that's repeated with these things. That's right. Now, what a Scientologist tries to do when you first meet them is they try to find your ruin. In other words, the one thing that if you were to solve this problem, your life would be just better, so much better, wonderful, you know, no looking back, all the rest of it. Uh They call it ruin finding, and they have a list of all these different ruins. And interestingly enough, even not having a ruin is a ruin. So, Oh, okay, so you you can't get out of it, right. Oh, no, oh, no, no. (laughs) So this is what the Oxford Capacity Analysis Test thing is for, is it to find your ruins? That's exactly what it's Mm. for. The interesting thing is that sometimes people do have a genuine ruin, you know, a problem that they can't solve by normal means. And they turn to the Scientologists for help and they climb to the top of the ladder, dragging their ruin behind them because they never, ever get rid of the ruin. But that's the interesting thing. If, for example, I was a teenager and my problem was communication, I couldn't talk to the opposite sex or even the same sex. And I did a Scientology communication course. I'd expect to have confidence in talking to people from that point on. And you do get that. So there's there's two things at work. Your ruin to some degree has been fixed, but that just encourages you to go on to do the next thing. Because if you can if you can make that little improvement, you can make a little bit more improvement. So you sold along the idea of improving yourself. Right. And when you've been in Scientology for a while, you do want to help other people. In fact, at the end of every Scientology course, they ask you, would you like other people to have the knowledge and gains that you now have? And, of course, you go, yes. I can't imagine everybody saying, <laughs> no, I don't want anybody to benefit in the way no, that I, I have. <laughs> I want to keep this for myself. I don't want to share this with anybody. So, again, that convinces you that you must have something. And you do believe that you have something. But, you know, I did my communication course in a weekend and I went back to work on the Monday and something in me had changed. I actually felt superior to my workmates because I could now communicate because I'd done this Scientology communication course. The interesting thing that I've only realized lately is that I couldn't tell them that I now knew all about communication. (laughs) I didn't know how to convey that I was changed and I was better and I was, you know. So there is a conundrum right there, but I didn't spot it at the time. I just felt that I'd improved, that I knew how to communicate, that my workmates didn't. Oh, they don't know how to communicate. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving, you know, that sort of crazy mental attitude. 
Wow, that is very interesting. So it was just a, a belief, but it wasn't empirically founded at all. Absolutely, yeah. But then again, you do say that some people do experience some genuine help. And if that's the case, isn't that just because Hubbard was using some psychological techniques? That doesn't actually mean that the rest of what he taught was true. Oh, yes. The entirety of Dianetics was actually stolen from Freud's abreaction theory, or therapy, I should say. Hubbard came across it when he was... Um, the war was finished, and I think he was still in the Navy, but he was trying to get himself a lifetime pension as a disabled, wounded veteran. So he was spending time in Oak Knoll Naval Hospital, and he came across an English psychiatrist there called Dr. William Sargant, who went on to write a book called The Battle for the Mind. William Sargant was using Freud's abreaction therapy to get soldiers over the trauma of the wartime experiences and able to adjust back into society with some success. And of course, Hubbard saw this. Now, I don't know if you saw the film The Master, but in the film The Master, they touch on this and the, the Hubbard character steals the psychiatrist's notes and goes on to found Dianetics. It's not a million miles away from the truth. You know, that's where Hubbard got his ideas from because he could see that people could be made feel better simply by discharging the emotional baggage they were carrying around and Freud's abreaction therapy did this yeah and I want to ask you a little bit more about L. Ron Hubbard in a minute mm. from everything that you said last time it does strike me that he was a very sort of magpie kind of figure oh picking yeah up bits and pieces from all over the place and finding out what worked so I mean how long were you in this organization and why did you actually leave in the end well, I got in in 1987, and by 1994, I was done. <laughs> uh, I was uh, bankrupt. I'd lost my house, my car, my job. And that, that was all to do with, with Scientology, because you had spent oh, so yeah. much money on oh, it. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Is this on the auditing process? Yeah, and also, like, I spent a lot of time in training. And um... Okay, here's the thing. When I, when I joined staff, I was promised an average pay of about £200 a week, and that was in 1987, which is what I was making anyway. And I never got that. I didn't get anything like that. So once your savings have gone, you need to find some other way of supporting yourself. And we did support ourselves to do Scientology training. They don't pay for the training. You are self-sufficient. I got sent to Los Angeles on the same basis. I was there for six weeks, and I had no money, you know. It's just terrible. And if you complain to anybody, they turn around and say, make it go right, <laughs> which is one of these phrases that they have. And yet you were promised that you would be supported. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So would you take that as a lie or do you take that as just a sort of failure of administration? It's a lie. There's no question about it. Mm. When my wife and I were both in Sussex at St. Hill training, we've been there for a good long time with no money. And every day we'd be calling up the organization because we were based in the Northeast. We'd be calling them asking for money and they'd promise money and it would never come. When I look back, I mean, we put up with six months of this, you know. I think we'd been there for about two months and we got sent eight pounds. <laughs> wow. Oh, yeah. And we just looked at each other and we went and bought a pizza, as I recall, and really, really enjoyed it because we weren't eating. You know, it was terrible. Now, there was an area called the stables where the dedicated sea organization members used to eat. And the guy who had initially got me to join staff and promised me this regular wage suggested I go down there and eat with them 
which is what he'd done when he was there. So I just wandered down there one lunchtime. I opened the door and it, it, it's it's like a joke. We know when you walk into the country pub and everyone stops and turns around and looks at the door. <laughs> yes. It was like that. It really was. There was about 40, 50 people shoveling food into their mouth. And when I opened the door and stood in the doorway, all these people stopped what they're doing and just looked at me with these haunted eyes. And I just went, what have I come to? I am not eating in there with those people it was like the equivalent of like you imagine a bunch of starving people and you throw them a handful of food and they all fight to get the food you know you see scenes like this in refugee camps and in in famine areas of africa it was akin to that in many ways although it was slightly civilized and strangely enough they were eating a plate full of rice yeah but was that just your local experience or have you seen that recapitulated across the globe if you read online about xc organization members that's a regular occurrence the big joke is they live on rice and beans and i think that's pretty much what i was looking at there there were even people amongst them that i quite respected and they had that same look upon their face so that was kind of very off-putting and yet funnily enough I, i remained a scientologist for a further six years so there lies the extent of the mind messing, you know. Yeah, which we'll come on to again in a minute. Mm. And, of course, you, you've already mentioned uh, L. Ron Hubbard. We both have. And uh, you told us last time something about his rather strange life. So perhaps you could sort of recap again on L. Ron Hubbard and how he came to create, uh, obviously, first of all, this Dianetics program. And, and then, of course, he went on to create the Church of Scientology. How did he do all this? I think from the very beginning, he was something of a romancer. He would tell people what he thought they wanted to hear in order to further himself. Mm. Even as a child, he had this trait of um, entertaining his family members with stories. Um, His life story, as written by the Church of Scientology, is pure fabrication. And there's a book called Barefaced Messiah, written by Russell Miller, which came out actually when I got into Scientology and I was told not to read it. So there's an example of censorship and controlling a person's information. But Russell Miller, he took the claims that were being made by Scientology regarding L. Ron Hubbard's life story and investigated them. And he said each time he did, he struck gold because he found that every single thing they'd written about him was not true. (laughs) Going back to the age of three. So, So Russell talks about his entire life Funnily enough, I I first read his book when I was first beginning to realize that Scientology was a con. And I was pretty angry because it it was like, you know, the curtain had been lifted and I was seeing it for what it was like. But I I recently read the book uh, for a second time. And to be honest, I couldn't stop laughing because I could see the comedy in this whole thing. Apparently, Russell went to check out Ron's remaining relatives who knew him when he was a child. He came across these aunties that he had in um, Tilden, Nebraska, I think it was. He sat drinking tea with all these aunties and he was asking, well, is this true? Is that true? And the aunties are all sat around laughing and saying, oh, that wrong. You know, (laughs) (laughs) they kind of had a picture of what he was like. Yeah. yeah, I think I told you last time that I was stopped by a Scientologist in Poole when they were very active down there in Dorset. So this is many, many years ago. And I was told that L. Ron Hubbard, of course, had gone to the East and got wisdom there. And of course, that he was also a nuclear physicist and all these kinds of things. You know, Dianetics was developed by a nuclear physicist. Yeah. The interesting thing about that is like, like 
they weren't exactly lying to you because they believed right. what they were telling you, even though it was a lie. So, I mean, does, does that mean they were lying to you? Sure, sure. So, so the lie originated with Hubbard himself. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When Russell Miller checked out that particular story about him spending time in the Far East, he discovered that at the age of 17, he went on a two-weeks holiday with his mum. The church tells you that he spent time with Mongolian bandits, that he spoke to wise men, that they really were interested in this kid with red hair because apparently the next incarnation of the Buddha was going to be some red-haired kid from the West. He later in life claimed to be the reincarnation of Buddha. So And Cecil Rhodes, wasn't it? Yes, indeed, until he found out that Cecil Rhodes was something of a transvestite and then he dropped that story. <laughs> right okay nice one <laughs> and he was of course a science fiction writer of sorts wasn't he and but, but yeah. his science fiction ideas ended up in scientology itself they did of course yeah and you don't mm. hear about this once you get over that first step you felt some gain or improvement so you dedicate a little bit more of your time and money to scientology you become aware that everyone's talking about this ot3 and it seems that ot3 is the goal now, initially in Dianetics, the goal is to become a clear and get rid of a reactive mind. And when you reach that point, your realization about life is you never had a reactive mind. You just made it all up. So it's interesting that he sells you on the idea of having this thing that you need to get rid of. And when you get rid of it, you realize you never had one in the first place. It's brilliant. you know. The OT3 thing is the next sort of like level and you're really encouraged that uh, if you don't get past this ot3 level before you die you're doomed for eternity and they do talk in those terms the ot3 story when i was in was kept very much under wraps in this day and age you can go online you can even watch south park and hear the OT3 story as it is, and it is a science fiction tale. There's no there's no other right. way to say it. Is, is this the one to do with Lord Zeno? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Because, I mean, I, I listened to one tape that uh, Hubbard gave. He delivered in 1968 on the flagship Apollo, mm-hmm. and he was talking about... The Class A lecture, yeah. Right, so this was... Supposedly, these were historical events. <laughs> this is how it was presented, as people on distant yes. planets involving this yeah. Lord Zeno and the death of millions of beings being frozen and boxed up and then blown up by hydrogen bombs, which released you thetans. Are... What, what, can you explain all that to us? <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the, the story goes, I mean, that is the story, that, that there was this galactic confederacy that consisted of 76 planets. Earth was called Tigiak in the day. Zenu himself could also be spelled X-E-M-U, which makes it Zemu. I guess that was before he settled on the name. But the interesting thing is that 75 million years ago, everyone spoke English. I find that amazing. Well, I suppose that's corroborated by Star Trek. Of course, yes, of course, yes. And that's logical, Captain. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, you told the story. You hear two different views. Like, like one view is that there was an overpopulation problem and you needed to get rid of a lot of people. And then the other one, of course, is that um, he was the supreme ruler, but for some reason he was going to be unelected. And I don't figure I can't figure out how if you're the supreme ruler of this galactic confederacy, you don't get unelected because you've done away with elections. But anyway, 
that that's the story. <laughs> this is it in a distant planet, is that right? Yeah, uh, around the area. Uh, he, he calls it Cultus, and he says it's somewhere near the North Star. And so millions of people die for whatever reason, and then they're frozen, they're boxed up, and then they're put into volcanoes, is that correct? That's right, that's right. They, they get called in for tax inspections, that's how he dupes them. Right. They get injected with alcohol and glycol, which freezes them. They get put into boxes, loaded onto space planes that look like DC-8s, exactly like DC-8s. Flown from Coltis to Tigiak, which is here, apparently it takes nine and a half weeks. I've done the maths, and it means that they would have had to be traveling at something like two and a half trillion miles an hour to do this. But anyway, <laughs> you can't okay. apply logic to this stuff. Well, he, he said Einstein was wrong in the lecture. Oh, yeah, of course. Mm. Einstein was obviously <laughs> so wrong. Uh, and then you're dead right. All these boxes were stacked around the bases of the volcanoes. And then the volcanoes themselves were blown up. Then some electronic kind of device sucked up all the alien souls, sat them down before giant 3D uh, screens and made them watch films all about God and the devil. And this is why we believe in God and the devil, apparently. It goes back to this. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Did I just say all that? I can't believe it. It's like, ah! Wow, but that is the Scientology creation story. And wow. that is, wow. is, is, that is the goal. That's what people go towards. He claims to have written a screenplay, which you can actually find online. It's called Revolt in the Stars. It is not written in screenplay format. It's written more like a novella. And it tells the whole story like, like a novelette. It's not very well written. Thank God Travolta wasn't successful with Battlefield Earth because he might have been making this one next, you know. Um, <laughs> just Can I just complete that story? So, yeah. so the, these souls that are released, these are the Thetans, is that correct? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's us, is that right? That's right. A Thetan in Scientology is simply your spiritual side, which they say you don't have a spirit, you are it. Okay, so you and I then were in fact two of these millions and millions of people on this distant planet who went through all this freezing and boxing up process. Oh, yes. Okay. And the other thing is is that some of them formed clusters because they were all lonely, I guess, and they didn't know what else to do. And our problems today stem from the fact that they're actually clinging to us right now. And the re- oh. what you have to do in Scientology is get rid of what they then call body thetans because they're stuck to you. And you spend hours and hours and hours and lots of money on trying to get rid of these body thetans, which are causing all the the problems you have. Um, The interesting thing is if you walk away from Scientology, a lot of your problems go away instantly. (laughs) You see, the thing I found incredible about that, listening to that lecture, is that as he was speaking it, people who were listening were chuckling Mm -hmm. while he was speaking. And I thought they were finding it amusing and yet presumably were believing it at the same time. Well, that's a curious thing going on there. That happens a lot. Yeah, you hear some of the things in some of his other lectures, and you know, jaw dropping is the word that com- is the phrase that comes to mind. And yet, in Scientology, Hubbard's words are uh, sacrosanct. I mean, if he said it, it's yeah. it. If any new developments come along, they're wrong because Hubbard said such and such. You know, 
Uh, yeah, so so this is acknowledged, isn't it? Because when I went to the website, the um, Scientology.org, under one of the frequently asked questions, does Scientology have a scripture? Let me just quote what it says. Yes, hmm. the written and recorded spoken words of L. Ron Hubbard on the subject of Scientology collectively constitute the scripture of the religion. He set forth the Scientology theology and technologies in tens of millions of words, including hundreds of books, scores of films, and more than 3,000 recorded lectures. So there it is, yeah. Yeah, as you say. They can't actually back away from anything that he says they to can't. do with that. It's pretty scary in, in, in lots of ways. You nailed it, yeah. And the absolutely amazing thing, which I found out since we last spoke, was that Mr. Hubbard apparently produced an album of songs back <laughs> in the, the early 1980s called The Road to Freedom, mm-hmm. which I think is of, well, I'm going to say it was is of mixed quality, if I could put it that way. Um, I thought the first song was okay, actually, uh, quite a catchy chorus, uh, apparently performed by John Travolta <laughs> with a few others. I don't know whether it's true, but it's claimed that Hubbard not only wrote the words, but also the music. And what struck me really was the final song on the album, Thank You for Listening, because (laughs) Hubbard himself sings that track. And it's it's not so much the quality of his singing voice, which perhaps we'll comment on in a minute. It's it's actually the, um, the seeming arrogance of the lyrics. So let me just quote the lyrics. They're not very long. Uh, They are, thank you for listening. I write just for you. But others hearing this may find things they would argue. I do not sing what I believe. I only give them fact. If they believe quite otherwise, it still will have impact. For truth is truth. And if they then decide to live with lies, that's their concern, not mine, my friend. They're free to fantasize. And it was that line, really, I do not sing what I believe. I only give them fact. As I was thinking about that, I was thinking, you know, it's one thing to argue for what you believe to be true. And I think, you know, fine, we should argue for what we believe to be true. But it's another claim, isn't it, to say that or imply that absolutely everything you say is fact, that you could not possibly make a mistake about anything. That's what seems to be implied there anyway. Yeah, it it shows the arrogance of the man, really, to be honest. Did you manage to read that little bit where he claims to have invented music? I, in, indeed. Uh, well, I, now where did I find that? It was it was an article from the LA Times, June twenty fourth, nineteen ninety. Let me just read that. Um, okay, so this is the quote from the LA Times. Um, Hubbard told associates that he had been many people before being born as Lafayette Ronald Hubbard on March 13, 1911 in Tilden, Nebraska. Uh, One of them was Cecil Rhodes, the British-born Diamond King of Southern Africa. Another, according to a former aide, was a marshal to Joan of Arc. (laughs) After Hubbard's death in 1986, a Scientology publication described him as, quote, the original musician, end quote, who three million years ago invented music (laughs) while going by the name of Arpen Polo. Um, the publication noted that, quote, he wrote his first song a bit after the first tick of time. <laughs> Three million years yeah, ago. OK, yeah. we, we won't go there. We won't go there. Um, that's interesting. There are so many contradictions in Scientology. And if the, the, the thing we were just talking about, the whole Xenu story happened 76 it's a trillion or a million. Either way, it's longer than three million years ago. <laughs> so if that was the first tick of time, what was going on before time? Well, we know it was Xenu and all the rest of it. But yeah. Well, it must have been non-metric time, as some philosophers would say. <laughs> but then you couldn't measure it in a number, could you? But there we are. I can agree with you. Um, so let's just hear, actually, a little bit of that song with Hubbard singing. And perhaps we'll uh, comment upon it afterwards. Do we have to? <laughs> I suppose <laughs> we don't have to, but I'm going to do it anyway. Okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> okay, uh, okay, Pete. So, um, have you got a reaction to that? 
<laughs> yeah, not a very polite one, even for radio. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the interesting thing about about this for me is the tune itself. Thank you for listening. Doesn't that sound a bit like God Save America? Because it does to me. Yes, so does. If, if music was invented three million years ago by this guy, why does it sound like that famous American ditty? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. How does that even work? Yes. Oh, please. The sad thing is that Scientologists, of course, think all this is absolutely true and factual, as he stated there in the lyrics. He doesn't um, sing what he believes. He just gives them fact. And they actually do think it is factual. To us, it is nothing more than a joke. So how, how do you feel after that? Well, I'm impressed by his low notes, I have to say. <laughs> I wish I could get down that far. It's obviously a true bass. <laughs> but the, the quality of the composition is the thing that gets to me. I mean, the tune is extremely weak. I mean, you've pointed to the fact that it's half plagiarized anyway, and it's pretty short as it is. Yeah, it's like a nursery rhyme, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, all the musical interest, of course, is in the accompaniment. And uh, am I to believe that he actually composed that as well? But maybe he Apparently. was a, quite a competent musician as well. I mean, yeah. Well, I, I, the, the one story comes up to mind. Like, when he was on the ship sailing around, the Mediterranean, dodging authorities everywhere, trying to take over Moroccan governments and all the all the rest of it. I mean, that's a story in itself. All this is, by the way, in Russell Miller's book, Barefaced Messiah, and you can get it free online if you go to um, Ex-Scientologist Island webpage, uh, download the PDF. He formed a band on board the ship called the Apollo All-Stars, and they too made an album. This one predates the road to freedom. Uh When they landed in a port, the Apollo All-Stars would try and get gigs in the town, and this was done as a a PR exercise to try and win over the locals. The Apollo All-Stars are actually worse than the Road to Freedom album. Wow. (laughs) And again, strangely enough, considering that he invented music, I think three of the songs on the album are actually covers of other other songs. So unless he, unless oh wait, hang on, he could have invented though. Yeah, okay, I, I, I get it. Um, but the story that that sticks for me, Scientology has a punishment detail for members of the C organization. It's known as the RPF or the Rehabilitation Project Force. Basically, it's the Gulag, and they even had it on the ship. And one particular guy was. In the RPF, he was being punished for some reason or other, but he happened to be a damn good drummer. And Hubbard sent the message to him saying, look, if you come and join the band and play drums, you can come off the RPF. His reply was, no, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) So he preferred the diet of rice and beans to to playing drums with Hubbard. So there you go. He invented music. Yeah. Well, I need to ask you just a little bit of a recap on, you know, the beliefs. We've sort of touched on it, but I think we need to go into it a little bit more. And I thought that a good way of doing that would actually be to go to the lyrics of that first song on the album, because it makes some statements there which link to beliefs very clearly. So this is what it says. Get on the road to freedom. Help us free all mankind. The pain and all your sorrow are only in your mind. If night looks dark and days look dull, if future holds no light, there is one thing you can do that solves it all outright. You are not mind or chemicals. You don't even have a form. You're in a trap of sense lies it's time to be reborn to you there is no limit knowledge is your key take the route of auditing and once again be free so i'm wondering if you could use that as a cue to explain how scientology is supposed to work it's fascinating we consider this a belief system 
Scientologists actually don't believe in anything and they proudly tell you that they don't believe in anything that Scientology itself means knowing how to know they don't believe they know but the interesting thing is that they believe they know right. oh I'm talking myself into, into a maze here so belief implies some portion of doubt but knowledge is a hundred percent yes according to them now of course we know that that science is never a hundred percent in fact here's the interesting thing in Scientology they have things called axioms and one of them is that absolutes are unattainable and yet the entirety of Scientology is based on absolutes it's it's a scary thing it, it really is because as a mind trap it is so intricate and subtle that you don't even know that you're in it. So you walk around thinking that you know things, but in actual fact, you're believing that you know things. I try to talk to Scientologists whenever I meet them, and I keep running up against this 100% certainty that they know something that others don't. And it's what, it's what I had when I, when I came back from my weekend communication course, this certainty and belief that's based on knowledge. You know, it, it's meant to be scientific, tested apparently by this genius who happened, just happened to be a science fiction writer. Scientology is infallible. Uh, Ron Hubbard's words are infallible. And that's really interesting um, because if you're an enemy of Scientology, they call you a suppressive person. And one of the ways that they decide that a person is suppressive is that they don't make any improvements in Scientology. Right. OK, well, I do want to ask you about that in a minute, actually. And this is uh, one of the things that uh, okay. an ex-Scientologist called Chris Shelton uh, talks about. And I think it's a, a very good point that he makes. Yes. But um, I just wanted to go over with you again what it is that Scientologists believe they know. So they believe that they know absolutely, although no absolute beliefs or whatever, but nevertheless, they believe yeah. they know yeah. kind of absolutely yeah. about yeah. Uh, thetans, engrams, clears, operating right. thetans, body thetans, auditing, e-meters. Can you just sort of give us a, a snapshot of how all that works? Yeah, I, I think I could sum it up best in their own words. You are an immortal spiritual being with unlimited potential. And that, in a nutshell, is it. That, quite clearly, is a belief. But to them, they know that. They are not a body or a mind. They have a body and a mind. So as this invisible spiritual being, you live in a body and you have this mind, which has two parts to it, the conscious and the unconscious, and all your troubles come from the unconscious part, which kind of takes out all the other things that might go wrong in your life. It's all your fault. But again, that's part of Scientology doctrine. And so all these techniques of this auditing, that's in order to clear out all these problems that are affecting you, and then you become clear, and then after a while you have other problems so that you have to go on to become an OT. Yeah, essentially, once you've got rid of that portion of your mind that you never had, you then have to do it all again, this time from the point of view of a cleared spiritual being. But you are essentially repeating what you've just done. It, it's scary. Um, one of the ways in which they dupe people, a lot of the techniques in Dianetics, you would have to say, are hypnotism. But of course, because his claim at the very beginning is, this is not hypnosis, we do the opposite. We're not putting people asleep. We are waking them up. So you go, right, so it's not hypnosis then. And you believe that. But that is a belief because it actually is hypnosis. <laughs> and one way to hypnotize someone is to lie to them 
while stirring them full in the face. It's very difficult to disbelieve someone who's looking right at you who tells you something. So if I'm yeah. going to hypnotize you, Julian, and I look you in the eyes and say, I am not going to hypnotize you. If you believe that, you're already hypnotized. Well, do you know, actually, I have something from my own family that uh, I won't say who it is, but there is a, a, a now deceased member of my family who I'm afraid was given to saying things that were obviously untrue. And yet he had an amazing ability to stare at you and tell you this untruth. And you felt yourself, part of your mind was trying to go along with it. And it was a purely psychological wow. thing. But he had that technique of doing that. And yet you knew, the other part of your mind knew, I absolutely know this is not true. <laughs> but those eyes were still staring at you. And I think he got away with an awful lot in his life because of that. That's really interesting because in that anecdote, that is Scientology. There is this perception of what it is or what they're telling you that it is. But deep down, it's different. And like, the only purpose of Scientology was twofold. It was to make a ton of money for L. Ron Hubbard and to quote himself in a letter to his wife to smash his name into immortality. And they were his goals in life. Wow. And he's achieved that because we're talking about him well, now. That's so. certainly true. Yes. Yeah. And it became a re he made it into a religion for financial purposes. Is that right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, Dianetics came out in 1950. By 1952, L. Ron Hubbard was made bankrupt. He wasn't paying any bills. He lost control of Dianetics. He had to sell it for a dollar to somebody else. Um, I, I can't remember the guy's name, but it was in Kansas, Wichita. The reason he was moving around so much is because like, he wasn't paying bills wherever he was, so he had to relocate. This is what finally got him out of America and over to Ireland and the UK. He was fleeing creditors. You know, He didn't like paying bills. While he was in Ireland, he borrowed £5,000 from somebody, and that was a lot of money in 1954. He never paid that back, and the guy was writing in the New Yorker magazine in 1968 about how he hadn't paid him back, and he wanted his five grand. He, he would try it on, and if he could get away with it, he would get away with it. So, in 1952, he realized that he had this wonderful thing that people were willing to pay him for, but he had to pay tax and he had to do this and he had to do that. So there was a meeting held and I've seen documentation from this meeting and from the people who were there. And they tried to work out the best way of setting something up where they wouldn't have to pay tax. There's a telegram he wrote to someone asking them to come up with a name and to come up with everything was, was like engineered and planned. Scientology came into existence to be uh, a tax-free money-making scheme for Hubbard. And it's a great name, isn't it? Because it gives the impression that it is really very scientific. It is. Um, if you do a little bit of research and look back into Scientology, spelt I-E, 1938, you'll find out that a German philosopher called Nordholz came up with the name. <laughs> <laughs> right. So yet again, the magpie at work. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, interestingly enough, one of the first things my brother said to me, and he got me into Scientology, or rather Dianetics as it was, was he's taken the best bits of all philosophies and put them all together into a new one. And it's a compelling idea that someone could actually be bothered to do that. It turns out to be not true, but again, it, it's the idea that, that they sell you on, that Hubbard concerned himself enough about other people and cared enough to do all this research and apply science to the field of the human mind and spirit and come up with workable results. And, and, and they actually 
think this is true. I almost said believe, but we know that's not true. They just know this is true. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> a few minutes ago, you were mentioning about the suppressive person doctrine, and I mentioned Chris Shelton and his view that, in fact, this means of control is actually proving to be part of the destruction of that organization. And he uses for his argument a particular document, a policy which was produced in 1965 called Handling the Suppressive Person, the Basis of Insanity. Uh-huh. And basically, it says that if you're not successfully responding to the techniques of Scientology, then you are a suppressive person. So in other words, Scientology cannot fail, which is incredibly inflexible. And he's claiming that uh, really that's part of the downfall of of the system because it just cannot adjust. It cannot adapt to anything at all. Shall I just uh, read what it says there in that particular policy? Mm. Quote, that alone is the way to locate a suppressive person by viewing their case. Never judge a person by their conduct. That's too difficult. Judge by no case gains. Don't even use tests. One asks these questions. One, will the person permit auditing at all? Two, does their history of routine auditing reveal any gains? So could you explain what Chris Shelton's point is there? It's it's fascinating hearing that, to be honest, because um, he won't allow anyone to be tested for gains. And yet, if you haven't made any gains, then you're a suppressive person. So how do they know that a person has or hasn't made any gains? If they're walking around with a silly smile on the face like someone drugged, saying, this is fantastic, this is the best thing I've ever done, you should become a Scientologist, then obviously you've made some gains. If you're walking around with a sad face, going, oh, I don't like this, I need to get out of here, this is terrible, this thing isn't working, it's a calm, then obviously you haven't made any gains. So... He's twisting words and simply saying that if you're not succeeding and happy with Scientology, then there's something wrong with you. It's scary. It's scary. Can you only can you imagine what it'd be like if Scientology took over the world? <laughs> yeah, so, so everybody would be sort of forced to live an unreality just in order to get by. Yeah, and you'd have to pretend to do Scientology auditing or processing, and you'd have to pretend to make gains, whether you did or didn't. A classic example would be just simply going back to Dianetics for a minute. And let's say, for example, you lost someone when you were 12, your grandmother, say, and you're upset over it by using the Dianetics technique, which again is just Freud's abreaction therapy. You simply go over the incident enough times so that the emotional content of the memory, even though it wasn't strictly speaking a memory, discharges so that when you think about it, you don't drag up all this emotion. You feel quite calm. If you had something in your life that was affecting you that badly and suddenly it wasn't, then you'd have to say you'd made some gain. But this is no different to counselling. This is this is what all counsellors do. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I can believe that, that some people do benefit from it to some extent. But it's got to be 100% successful with every single problem that's there. Yeah. If, it, if it's not working in Scientology, if you're not getting the gains that they say you should be getting – there is something wrong with you. It's that simple. You are a suppressive person. You are a suppressive person, yeah. And Chris Shelton's point, if I understand him correctly, is that this creates such a kind of tension in people that they simply can't live with it. And so this is actually proving to destroy the church itself. Yeah, one of the things that's destroying the church itself. Chris does some wonderful work. Um, it was a pleasure to meet Chris, actually. I met him in May. Uh-huh. 
Now, one of the things he brings up are these ideal orgs, which I had not heard of before, which sound like a, a whole load of building projects uh, initiated, obviously, by the leadership of the organization in the hope that somehow this is going to generate new life in the organization. But he says it's not working and a lot of these buildings are just standing unused. Yeah. So w- what's the strategy with this? It's fascinating. Um, L. Ron Hubbard wrote a policy letter called The Ideal Org. And essentially what that is is... Scientology building full of people doing Scientology. That's the main thing. It's absolutely brimming full of people. They're all doing Scientology. They're all happy. They're telling their friends and relations all how wonderful Scientology is. And that is basically what he says in his Ideal Org policy letter. Right. So the Ideal Org is a building full of happy people going yes. through the process. And telling others. Now, L. Ron Hubbard died in 1986, and the interesting thing is when a cult leader dies, the cult often does not survive. Scientology is still going, and that's because the guy who's in charge at the moment, David Miscavige, has taken over the reins, and he has adopted this ideal org phrase. For him, an ideal org is... Let's say, for example, let's say we're based in London. We've got this terrible, rundown Scientology building. So if we build an ideal org, we buy a wonderful landmark building with, with, with wonderful architecture that's well known to the citizens, and we turn that into a Scientology organization or church, and everyone will think we're wonderful because A, we've restored this building, B, we're providing this great service to the community, and everyone will come along, and you will end up with this building happy, full of happy, smiling people telling others and so on. To fund such a thing, why don't we get the people who live there to throw money at us so we can buy this building? So Miscavige, rather than putting emphasis on emphasis on doing Scientology and Dianetics and selling the books and the courses, the emphasis has shifted over to simply fundraising for these ideal org buildings. Well, these buildings are very beautiful. I mean, a yes, lot of the pictures indeed. that I've oh, seen yeah, yeah. are really stunning. And then when they're opened, of course, there's a whole crowd of people watching the great opening ceremony. But yeah, on the on the opening day, the yeah, on the opening day, they're packed. Yeah, but then but then you see pictures of them afterwards, and it's just a load of lights on and nobody at home. That's true. That's true. The opening day is packed full of people, and then everyone just wanders away because. It's a big facade. It's an empty facade. Now, the interesting thing is that that Hubbard himself actually had something to say. Now, here's the quote. We own a tremendous amount of property. We own a tremendous amount of material and so forth, and it keeps growing. But that's not important. When buildings get important to us, for God's sake, some of you born revolutionaries, please blow up central headquarters. So Hubbard himself, Hubbard himself is saying, It's not about buildings, it's about people. Hubbard knew this, of course. Now, in recent times, with all the information that's coming out about Scientology, you can't hoodwink people anymore. So Miscavige has to milk the existing people because Mm. the numbers of new people are not the same as they were. So it's costing them dearly, then, those who are in. Oh, yeah. It's costing those who are in, yeah. yeah. They're being milked for every last penny. MikeRindersBlog.org has a lot of information on this, and one of his recent posts showed how, from the very beginning of Scientology, the, the, the whole the whole timescale from then to now is about 60 years, and it was split roughly into 20-year segments. 
And I think in the first 20 years, there were 63 Scientology organizations opened up in the next 20 years. So we're going from roughly like 1970 to 1990, a further 73 or something were opened up. But since the 1990s to now, they've only opened three. Now, if you envisage that as a graph, you've got this increase, 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 and then it plummets. So when Scientology says that they're the fastest expanding religion and the biggest growing this, that and the other, those figures tell you the truth. It is crashing and plummeting down. But Miscavige has to have this money coming in. So they're fleecing the existing members and he sold them all on this ideal or campaign, which is in direct contradiction to Scientology policy, as I read from that Hubbard quote about blow up central headquarters when people become interested in buildings. So it's a, it's a sign of desperation then. In it itself. is nothing more than that. I mean, Scientology's days are numbered. But I mean, you go to the Scientology.org and, you know, uh, the 30 years of the IAS, I'll ask you about that in a minute, a legacy of global betterment. What is the first paragraph? It all began in 1984, a time when Scientology could be found in just 39 nations on the planet. 30 years later, members of the International Association of Scientologists hail from 130 countries across North America, South America, Europe, Asia, Africa, and Australia fortifying the church stature as the only world religion to emerge in the 20th century that's also thriving well into the 21st. Mm. The one thing you can be certain of with almost 100% certainty is that anything said by Scientology is untrue or such a gross distortion of facts that it's meaningless. The facts are the statistics and the expansion over the last 20 years is three new organizations, three. Yeah, let's stick to the facts. Um, well, now that I've mentioned this International Association of Scientologists, I was going to ask you about some of the events that you've been involved in over the last 12 months or so. And you've been involved in the Flag Down event and the IAS 30 event. So can we start with the Flag Down one? Now, um, this, I believe, was uh, an event in Clearwater, Florida. Can you tell us what that was all about and how it went? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, two years ago, like, like the IAS is the International Association of Scientologists, and they have a big event every year, usually in October usually the second or third week in October. And it's always in England at St. Hill Manor mm. in East Grinstead. And two years ago, we were there as protesters and hopefully trying to get the message across to those poor Scientologists inside. And we, we felt that we had some impact on what was going on. In fact, there were clips of what we were doing, including in the Channel 4 documentary. And... The following year, we were making plans to go again, and then they, we heard they'd moved it to Clearwater, and they'd never done this. You, you mentioned that the International Association of Scientologists was started in 1984, and in all that time, it was always in England, and it was always in East Grinstead. The, the fact that they'd moved to Clearwater, first of all, we were slightly disappointed because we were looking forward to going back to England. But then I, I got the idea, well, well, hang on, why don't we just go to Clearwater and do it there? You know? So that was the plan. Can I just say the St. Hill Manor, is that the world headquarters or just the UK headquarters? It was the world headquarters when Hubbard was in charge. Oh. The, the world headquarters now are wherever David Miscavige is, because he's, he's at the very top of the pyramid. And he's the main man. I mean, you know. So is he based in Florida? Then? No, he's not. He actually is based in the oh. desert, a few miles from Los Angeles in a place called Hemet, H-E-M-E-T. And they call the place Gold Base. The place is like uh, <laughs> it's like a concentration camp 
with these like bars and um, razor spikes that face inwards. When they asked the spokesperson, Tommy Davis, about that, he said that's just the way they were built. <laughs> not, not quaint like St. Hill Manor then, certainly. Ooh, not at all, not at all. So we had the idea of going to Florida because we couldn't, we couldn't miss the big annual Scientology event. And how could we keep an eye on numbers if we weren't there? So we cooked up this plan just to go to Florida and do it then. But the problem was, like, we didn't know when to go. And, and, you know, you can't just go to Florida and wait for the Scientologists to announce when they're having their annual event. Because the interesting thing about this is, like, sometimes they don't even announce the date until two weeks before. I don't know how Scientologists deal with this. So we had this big problem of, like, well, when do we go to Florida? So discussions went backwards and forwards between a number of different people. And so, well, okay, one thing we know for sure is that they, they will never change Dianetics Day in May so why don't we just go in May? That way we're not waiting for them to decide and we can go. And May's a good time of the year to be in Florida, whereas October, November isn't. So there's a lot of, obviously, a lot of discussion went backwards and forwards. So in the end, we came up with this idea to go to Florida and have a conference Monday to Friday, five days. Yeah. <laughs> We've done nothing like it before. And we had people like Russell Miller came and spoke. Um, John Sweeney from the BBC, who is known as the guy who got yelled at or yelled at the Scientologist. You were not there at the beginning of that incident. John was there. L. Ron Hubbard's great-grandson, Jamie DeWolf, was there. It was just a fantastic week. So, yeah, that was flagged down. And you can actually see the speeches and, and videos that we made on a YouTube page called Flag Down 2014. I shall link to that. And yeah. some of the speeches oh, are, uh, are amazing, you know. Did you get any reactions from the Scientology Church? Yeah, we had a little bit of... Uh, when I arrived, I was handed an injunction because... Um, oh. Yeah, apparently, um, even though I was nothing to do with the Lisa McPherson Trust, they were trying to serve me with a copy of the Lisa McPherson Trust injunction. That's another story in itself. I wouldn't take it from the process server, and I believe as I walked by him, it ended up on the floor. But I don't know, it was picked up, and I think the sheriff got it in the end. <laughs> I've no idea. Yeah, I saw a little bit of one person speak, I can't remember his name, who was saying that, uh, according to this injunction, he was allowed to speak standing in one place, but not allowed to speak standing somewhere else. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. The, the, the injunction named various people that were in something called the Lisa McPherson Trust that was dissolved a good many years ago, but the Scientologists still trot this out. It essentially keeps Scientologists and protesters 10 yards away from each other. <laughs> and the Scientology building in Florida, Fort Harrison in Clearwater, 10 yards away from that building, mm. if there are Scientologists on the sidewalk, because obviously the sidewalk's a public area. The judge did this to keep people from being a nuisance to each other, because like a man called Bob Minton, who has since passed away, who devoted a lot of time and money to, to destroying Scientology or trying to expose it to the extent that its terror was curbed, he was actually assaulted by a Scientologist. So basically, in the interest of peace, the judge said, OK, you guys stay 10 yards away from each other. It's got absolutely nothing to do with me or flag down, but they still trotted this thing out. One of our um, organisers, um, nicknamed Darth Zander, is a lawyer, and his advice was just ignore it. So we did. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And you had the IAS 30 event, which 
was here in the UK. And I saw a little bit of video of this with a bunch of you standing outside with right. uh, St. Hill with placards and uh, telling <laughs> motorists, drive on, drive on, don't take your credit cards in and things like that. There was, there was one chap there, um, perhaps you'll tell me about him in a minute. He was shouting quite aggressively, I thought, actually, but uh, you weren't, certainly. <laughs> anyway, what, what was all this? Yeah, um, how, how did this go? It's, it's quite a knack to shout without sounding aggressive. <laughs> yeah, you, man- you manage it. You really do. Yeah, yeah. Five years experience, please. It can be done. But the interesting thing is that, that once we'd had the flag thing, they moved the IAS event back to England. We arrived on the day and we had um, signs and placards and we just tried to communicate to as many Scientologists as possible going in. Uh, more often than not, they gave us the middle finger... Like one girl, as she was waiting in the car, she had two fingers up against the side of her face and she was moving them up and down. <laughs> and I can remember kids doing this at school, you know, and thinking like, yeah. I was just about to say that. I've had that a few times as a teacher. That's right. <laughs> Is there something wrong with your cheek, young man? <laughs> it was so funny. And like, of course, we are filming everything that happens. There's a rugby club just down the road. Uh, I mean, it, it's opposite, actually. Normally, that's used as the overflow car park for coaches. I noticed with interest that two years ago, where they had about 40 or 50 coaches, um, this year there were only six. So numbers were definitely down this year. You could see the impact being made on Scientology. I won't say that because of us, because, I mean, it might be everybody's efforts worldwide, which I rather think it is. I wouldn't say for one minute that it's because we were there, although we would be having some impact, obviously. Did did you see any evidence that you were having some kind of impact? I mean, you had this this really big sign up saying Cult Zenu, and uh, you seem to be implying, you know, oh, yeah, there's another one gone, there's another one. Gave gave the impression that some of those people were going to turn in to the entrance, but were changing their mind. I don't know whether you think they did. Yeah, that's hard to uh, quantify, Mm. to be honest. Some people drove in and out all day, creating the illusion of lots of traffic, where in actual fact it was the same person. The Saint Hill bus, little white transit minibus, that was in and out all day long with no people. So why that was doing that, I have no idea. Mm. Um, Some of the coaches were not full. The fullest coach was a coach from France that probably had about 30 people on. I actually missed a lot of um, Nation of Islam people that were heralded in. Um, my friend Samantha apparently told them a few things about what L. Ron Hubbard said about black people, which, you know, they were ushered in. Oh, sh- sh- don't listen to her. Keep going. Keep going. Because I don't, I don't know if you know this, but the Nation of Islam and Scientology have formed a bond. <laughs> All right. No, I had no idea. And what was the reaction of the police? Because there was a policewoman standing there taking loads and loads of notes all the time. The police were, were, were there just to keep the peace. Um, and they were very interested in what we were doing. They'd done their homework as well in some in some areas. Um, we, had a, we had a wonderful time with the police. Um, we always do. Um, going back to the rugby club, three lads who were rugby players wandered down. One of them happened to be a media student and he asked if we could do interviews with them the next day. So we said we would and we set that up and we did that the next day. And as they were filming outside the gate of St. Hill, a Scientologist drove out and these guys had to move all their equipment out of the way because he was driving straight at them, you know. And I like, saw that. Yeah. I saw that little clip. Yeah, that's right. And, and you, you, I think it was you who said, oh, yeah, you did that deliberately. Oh, they do. They do. You see, like, like we are less than, than human to them. 
I mean, if anyone's interested in, in reading what Scientology has to say, like you mentioned the, um, what, the suppressive person thing, the basis of insanity. Apparently, we're all insane and they're not. Um, Am I right in thinking that Hubbard actually said something along the lines of somebody who's a suppressive person, you can injure them or something like that? Yes, indeed. Um, it's called right. the fair game policy. And they say that we don't do fair game anymore. But what he says is that you don't use the words fair game anymore because they create a bad image. But this does not change how you treat a suppressive person. And quite simply, a suppressive person may be lied to, tricked, sued or destroyed and they're the exact words yeah it's it's scary not exactly love thy neighbor but there we are um that brings me on to the other question that i had here about the the status of scientology as a religion because i understand that its current status here in the uk as far as the government is concerned anyway is that it's not a religion but that the uk supreme court has now kind of recognized it as a religion since the end of last year can you tell us why that happened and what that really entails yeah I don't think it's as uh, exactly as Scientologists think it is. I think, um, quite simply, a couple, a Scientology couple. She just happens to be the daughter of Scientology's chief solicitor in England, and the boy happens to be the uh, son of a Scientology couple that I know from my time in, and they're quite high up in the hierarchy of Scientologists in England. They wanted to get married, and they were upset, allegedly, that they couldn't get married in their own church. So her father being a legal guy said, why don't we contest this? And it was it was definitely a campaign. It was funded by Scientology that this, that this young couple should challenge the fact that they couldn't get married in a Scientology church. So five judges got together and discussed the matter, and they looked at why isn't it a church, and it, they came up with the idea, well, they don't believe in God. Mm -hmm. That's why they're not a religion, and that's why people can't get married in their buildings. So the judges, well, is there any kind of like precedent or is there any kind of you know history with this? And they discovered that Buddhists also don't believe in God, and they used this in their ruling to say, well, Buddhists don't believe in God, so that doesn't make them any less of a religion. So why don't we just say that it's okay for them to get married in a Scientology building? And I just find this hilarious because Buddhists actually don't get married. Buddhists have a civil ceremony with the blessing, if wanted, by a monk. But Buddhists themselves don't get married. And the Scientologists take this as a victory that now they've been recognized as a religion, which to some degree they have. But they've been recognized as a religion that doesn't believe in God. So there you go. <laughs> okay, but that's a one practical difference that people can get actually married in their churches. But beyond that, does it mean anything other than yeah. just a sort, of, a sort of PR victory for them? It's simply that. It's simply PR. The dangerous thing is that they might use that as a sort of a springboard to launch a campaign to get full recognition, like they have in the US, where they are recognized as a religion and get full tax exemption. I do believe that a lot of Scientology organizations in the UK get breaks from the local councils because they're claiming to be of public benefit, which I would absolutely dispute that. Scientology organization is of no benefit to the public whatsoever. I mean, everything Scientology tries to do to enhance its legality, there are always people who are willing to sort of like try and stop it. So, yeah, there are people working behind the scenes. 
hopefully they won't be able to get full religious recognition because that would be an absolute disaster for everybody. Mm. Do you want to say something about this new event that's coming up, this Dublin event? This is uh, Scientology Suspicious Deaths in February 2015. Is it showing a documentary? Yeah, I'd love to talk about that because that that would be our our next big thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Set for the weekend of February the 6th and 7th, but that's the Friday and the Saturday. Uh, There's a German film documentary maker called Marcus Thurs, and he has produced a documentary called Scientology Suspicious Deaths. It concentrates on three, namely a German woman called Biggie Reichert, who died in Florida. The strange thing about her death is that she's got all these like marks on her head, and, and they've not been explained. It's not even explained why a young woman should die. Her story resonates with me because... Um, she worked for a Scientology organization and was supposedly getting $200 a week. Um, she also worked in her husband's uh, veterinarian business. The problem is that she was completely broke. In spite of having two jobs, she had nothing and she had debts. So all was not well and questions need to be asked. And I believe the documentary covers this. It also talks about Kyle Brennan somebody else who was found dead in Florida. The official verdict as it stands is suicide. Whether it is suicide or not, what has happened and what is quite clear is that the Scientologists involved in that case have lied over and over and over to the extent that Kyle's mum still does not know exactly how Kyle died on that night. And then the other case that I think he's mentioned is the, is the case of a Russian man, and I really can't remember his name, I'm sorry, who defenestrated himself from an eighth-story window, again in Florida. And there are so many un- unanswered questions, like apparently there were a number of people in the apartment when it happened. Were there? Were there not? Who knows? I don't want to give away too much, but the documentary... I dare say we're going to premiere in Dublin on the 6th of February. We'll also be meeting um, Marcus himself. We'll have a guest who used to work for the German government keeping an eye on Scientology. And we'll also have Kyle's mum and a few other people as well. So we're going to put um, an event together that hopefully will expose more of what's going on in Scientology. And with a bit of luck, we'll get Scientologists themselves to actually just go, what am I involved in here? And of course, this is about people who've possibly suffered ultimately from this particular oh, organization. Yeah. But, you know, often people talk about the other side of things, so those who seem to have benefited dramatically from Scientology. So these people like Tom Cruise and John Travolta. And I didn't I didn't ask you in the first interview, but I'll ask you now. Have you any idea how those two people and people like them got involved? I mean, I understand that there was some sort of I don't know whether it still exists, but some sort of recruiting office in Hollywood. Is that right? Oh, yes, so there is, the Celebrity Centre. Every country had its Celebrity Centre, sometimes every city, but the Celebrity Centres are now merging with other organisations, which is a way of not saying that Scientology is closing buildings down. (laughs) Um, I feel very sorry for those people because with them being so uh, much in the public eye and prominent and having came out as Scientologists, It will be extremely difficult for them to reject Scientology. Leah Remini, who is an American actress, has done so, and a number of other American actors and actresses that have. Tom Cruise and John Travolta are big names, and they, they, to this day, have not. 
Did Uh, they get in through that recruiting center? Oh, yes, they certainly did. If you are a Scientologist and you hook or ensnare a celebrity, you get lots of rewards because Hubbard, quite rightly, said that celebrity will sell and it gives it an apparency of respectability, which they desperately needed and wanted. And he knew this. I mean, he was quite cynical. He made a list of of celebrities that were around in his day to try and get on board. One of them was Walt Disney, you know. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Elvis was also on the list. But Elvis just took one look and said, I don't want anything to do with those guys. (laughs) Which is kind of sad because his ex-wife and daughter did. Although they, certainly Lisa Marie may well have left. And Lisa Marie, I believe, is living in England now. And she's written a song, going back to music, that suggests that she's left and she knows what it was she got herself involved in and she's turned her back on it. But I'd love to see Tom Cruise and John Travolta wake up and leave. But it's it's going to be very difficult for them because they're going to have to, like, eat crow. They're going to have to eat humble pie, especially Tom Cruise, who was you know, set himself up there as this great spokesperson. It's sad. You know, I, I have every ounce of sympathy for those guys. I really do. But, you know, man up and get out of there, you know, so we'll see. Well, exactly. We'll see. Who knows? And as you say, as this uh, organization declines in numbers, one thing that seems to happen mm-hmm. is that people are saying, I mean, I'm thinking of this guy called Marty Rathbun and people like that are saying, well, you know, the problem is with the church itself, not with Scientology as a system. So therefore it can be reformed. We need a... Yeah. Well, update on that one. Marty has now turned his back completely on Scientology and he does, he no longer says that. Um, oh, right. Yeah. Right. That, that happened this year. He no longer considers himself a Scientologist of any kind because there was the established Scientology and then there was independent Scientology and then there are people called free zoners. There are so many different types of Scientology. Being an independent Scientologist, in my opinion, is something of a soft landing for people getting out. But you imagine if you've devoted like years and years of your life, sometimes 20, 30 years of your life, spent potentially millions in the case of those that can afford it or thousands in the case of those that can't afford as much as millions imagine that you have to like fess up and go oh oh, i've been calmed that takes a lot of courage you know marty's done it now and you know hats off to him Absolutely. Well, I'm very pleased to hear that. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's great. Because he's had a lot of criticism as well about uh, why doesn't he tell all he knows? Because Marty was number two at one point. He was definitely number Mm -hmm. two in the hierarchy. And Mike Rinder is another man that was up there. He was the head of the like Scientology Secret Service, like the Office of Special Affairs. Oh, was this the guy who was in that documentary and was really quite uh, aggressive and then not long afterwards he came out? He was the one. Uh When Tommy Davis was yelling and getting John Sweeney to yell, Mike was standing in the background. Mike's now out and Mike has a blog called Mike Rinder's Blog. And he, again, is publishing a lot of stuff, um, which is internal. He's got access to a lot of genuine Scientology documents that are recent. So we know. We know it's going down. We know it's shrinking. Miscavige's big problem is to convince the people who are still in that this expansion is still continuing in the face of us presenting facts that show the exact opposite. 
good luck with that, Mr. Miscavige. <laughs> so it's quite possible then I'll come back to you in another year from now and saying, hey, Pete, do you want to come on and talk about the latest you know, update? And there might not be all that much to talk about. It's very, very possible that we're there. But old timers who've been fighting them for a long while, and there's been people fighting them since it started, they say, yeah, we've been like this before. We've been here before. We thought it was going to be over with Lisa McPherson. We thought it was going to be over with blah, 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 blah. All we can do is keep on going and keep on doing what we're doing because we know that on a worldwide basis, we, we are having an impact. People know what Scientology is and they're not joining like they were, certainly in, in past years. And existing members are waking up because like we haven't talked about disconnection, but the Scientologists use disconnection as a weapon like to keep people in line. And if you've, you're faced with the choice of remaining a Scientologist or losing your entire family, most people decide to remain a Scientologist. Um, but the interesting facts, certainly, like, here's, here's some of the facts from around East Grinstead, where they have 275 high-level Scientologists. Of the 275, about half of them are actually in contact with the Scientology organization. And I think 30 of them are actually doing courses which is a very low number, you know, it's almost like 10% are doing something, which means 90% have actually walked and are under the radar, as the phrase goes. They're keeping their heads down. They're keeping out of trouble. They're not speaking out because they don't dare because they'll lose their family and friends if they do. That is an interesting picture. And that's the Scientology headquarters in the UK. So it's not good for them. And I'm glad. I'm glad because, you know, mankind will benefit. Yeah, it's good for everybody else. Absolutely. Totally. Yeah, and, and, and in a sense, of course, it is good for them, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, if they do wake up, as you say, then they, their lives are going to be improved. hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent with absolute certainty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Pete, thanks, thanks ever so much for coming on again. It's been a delight to speak to you, as it was indeed the first time around. Um, before we actually formally close, uh, I noticed that your website that I pointed to last time, which was Exscientologist UK, no longer exists. Are you now based at Exscientologist Ireland? Yeah, we had some problems with that, and it was something to do with the Scientology Office of Special Affairs, but we won't go into details. <laughs> Let's just say that for one reason or another, we lost that particular site. And I noticed a lot of the information that was on there is actually copied anyway, or mirrored on the yes. Ireland side. Yeah, um, we have the ex-Scientologist Ireland site, which is uh, pretty informative, and it does actually cover the UK. And the way things are working right now, people who are involved in this particular struggle UK and Ireland are very much linked together and certainly the event in February will be a joint effort by the UK and, and Irish ex-Scientologists. So yeah, yeah. Um, and you have a YouTube channel which you're f fairly active with. Can you tell people about that? Yeah, it goes under the name of Pedro FC UK and I post a lot of my um, Scientology adventures. <laughs> on yes, yes. Yeah. And your performances, in fact. You were singing a song, was it It's All Over? That's yeah, I took um, the Roy Orbison classic and changed the words a little bit to reflect Scientology's current status. <laughs> well, if, if it's all right with you, Pete, can we uh, end the program by using that music? Oh, dear. The second version, not the first one, right? <laughs> yeah, the one where you're wearing the beret. Uh, can't remember, can't remember. <laughs> um, yeah, and there'll be links 
uh, on the, to other sites as well. Like, because I'm not the only person doing this. You know, there's, yep. there's a whole crowd of people doing this. But I would warn anybody who gets interested in this, just be wary because it's like a rabbit hole. You know, you fall down and it's like, whoa. One of our people who will be at the conference in February started his journey in this subject by simply going to Los Angeles to interview Karen Della Carrier, who was the wife of the president of the Church of Scientology, who's been missing for years. And she warned him. She said, be very careful. You know, you, you can just get so wrapped up in this. And the article he was going to write has become a book. <laughs> and he's dedicated the last three years to researching this book. And that's what happens. It becomes, but it is fascinating. It's fascinating. How do you do um, it? How do you balance your life? That's a good question. I do have a life. I'm very happy in my personal life. And I have other interests. Like I, I work as an artist as well sometimes. Oh, yeah. Uh, I do a bit of singing now and again, but not not professionally. <laughs> But uh, I, I look for the balance. I, I definitely do look for the balance. And I, I think once I've dealt with Scientology, um, I'll move on to something more worthwhile, like tobacco companies and pedophiles or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, keep campaigning. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you ever so much, Pete. As I said before, it's great Thanks to speak to you. And um, you, last time you gave us loads and loads of links, which of course I will link to again. Uh, information you know, backing up a lot of the things that you've said. So thanks very much for coming on, and I hope to speak to you again one day. No, thank you. It's been a pleasure.